Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dave Wilner to the show. Welcome, Dave. Hey, how are you? Doing great. Dave is the Chief Revenue Officer of Auth0. They are an identity management platform for application builders. And you may not realize it, but you probably logged in using Auth0 today. They uh, actually serve up more than 100 million logins per day. 100 million is kind of a magic number because Auth0 has also scaled under Dave's watchful leadership from $800,000 to over $100 million in revenue. So uh, we have a lot of growth to talk about. Dave and I are particularly going to talk about sales leadership lessons, but really 360 degrees, right? How do you manage up? How do you manage peers? How do you hire effectively? So we're going to talk a lot about sales leadership uh, and, and how do you scale in the process. Um, Dave, I'm going to start out by just asking you because you know you've you've had an incredible career working at both big companies as well as growing these early stage companies to to you know Series D, F, and beyond. I'm curious how you learn, right? I learn from books. Other people learn from other resources. How how do you keep the saw sharp? That's a great question. You know, it's probably it's probably evolved over time, right? I mean, I've gone through the Sandler trainings and the people trainings and the, you know, the prototypical seminars at the red lion out by the airport, right? Like we all, we've all kind of suffered through and read all the books. You know, I'd say at this point, the biggest learnings I probably get are when I do skip levels, you know, over the last five years, our org has grown so much and my orgs have grown so much that, you know, just to make sure I have a handle on what's going on in the business. I try each week one-on-ones with between two and four people within my org that don't report to me. You know, and increasingly, I'm realizing that most of the learning I have, not just about the business, but about people, um, how they think, um, how messages cascade through the org, what motivates them. You know, I, I think I probably learn more from those skip levels now than anything else. Chief revenue officer means many, many different things in many different companies. So w- what is the breadth of, of your responsibility? Yeah, so so at zero, I guess I have three areas. So I have the sales area, which is everything you'd expect, right? Inside sales, outside sales, sales engineers have post-sales, what we call customer success. And within that is typical support, professional services, technical account management and managed services. And then I have our global marketing organization as well. So it's about a little over half the company. Of those, as you cut your teeth in different roles coming up, what was the newest for you? You've been there now, what, almost almost five years. So it's nothing's that new. But what, what, what was something that wasn't in your background that you had to pick up? So I had I had handled all of the functions before. I would say the thing that is that I've seen the most change in over the last 20 years is obviously SaaS is, if you're 30, SaaS isn't relatively new. If you're in your 50s, like I am, SaaS is relatively new. And so this notion of customer success you know, has been evolving a lot over the last 10 years. I think you see a lot of SaaS companies that 10 years ago had customer success managers. And a lot of those backgrounds were really service oriented. Uh, whereas we've been migrating to much more of a technical account management role, where the value they're providing is to unblock or provide best practices to help folks adopt faster. And so I would say that trend in general is one that's manifested here. As you migrate your people towards that more technical account management orientation, mm-hmm. there's this big question that is unresolved around under what context should the customer success side have commercial responsibility, right? So, you know, you have some places where your your AEs and AMs have all the commercial responsibility inclusive of upsell, cross-sell renewal, and the customer success manager is really there to just like 
effectively drive NPS, right? Just make customers happy, make sure they're engaged, make sure they're using effectively, handle their technical questions, either proactively or reactively. And then you have other places where they've transferred some or all of the commercial responsibility for upsell, cross-sell, renewal onto the CSMs. Where have you seen those different models you know, work and fail? Yeah, I've seen both. I think if folks wanted to be in sales, they'd be in sales. And so if you're trying to scale an organization where their primary charter is to protect renewals first, right? Ensure that you've got good net retention and minimize churn first, and then grow second, then you want folks that are wake up each morning passionate about their customers. And I think there are certainly those folks that also find getting spiffs or commissions novel and fun. But in my experience, more of them are stressed by that or can be stressed by that if there's too much emphasis there. And in SaaS, right, once you land a customer, the cardinal sin is losing that customer, right? And so, you know, the number one priority for me for customer success org has to be to drive time to value down as fast as possible and get customers realizing value fast. And if you've set up a good operational model, that should be 90% of the lift toward expansion. And that's certainly what we see, whether it's needing additional seats for their existing application or being willing to make introductions into new departments. The key thing they're looking for isn't someone to pester them. It's to be live and to be successful. So while we certainly have comp components on upsell, you know, our view is if you do all the right things, those things are likely to get pulled through. You mentioned having an operational model, which I would assume you have had to build and evolve over time in all of these worlds. I'm curious how either, you know, your sales and or customer success model varied as you went from, you know, the 800K, so we'll call it a million to 10 million from, and then from 10 million to 100 million. I assume that they're very different needs operationally during those two phases. Yeah, obviously across the board. I mean, I think, I think in some respects, the journey has been pretty typical, right? As you get larger, you resegment, you open new territories, you start to shrink territories and drive focus. I think those things have been typical. I think what has been interesting or unique is how much we've been able to get done virtually. You know, we have a small business team, for example, that, you know, they, they're selling into accounts that are less than 100 users. So fairly small. And yet, you know, they're routinely doing seven, eight, $900,000 in ARR each year. And that is candidly beyond my wildest dreams for what an inside team could do in that segment. And so I think there's, you know, there's a few components to that run is, you know, our audience, we're selling predominantly to developers. And so candidly, you know, that's in the category of it's better to be lucky than good, right? We've got self-starters, folks that want to put their hands on the technology um, and spin something up on their own anyway, which means that very often by the time they're talking to us, they've been pretty educated. And we've also, I think, done a good job of instrumenting the team to be able to show value without having to be on, you know, in front of a whiteboard. Is there, I would assume there's an element of what is now being called product-led growth, which used to be called freemium, uh, where <laughs> I don't know why it's been renamed, but uh, some, some, I'm sure some consultant made money off of that. I would assume there's some element of that where people can get access to the API and implement it on a small scale sandbox environment. Correct. They have to register to do that. Once you, you sort of see what's happening, you, your sales team can engage. That's exactly right. And we've done a good job. I'd say one of the things we got right early was the importance of quality content and content marketing. You know, as much as every sales leader wants to say that, you know, it was their team's tenacity and ferocity and kicking down doors that built the company. Candidly for us, it was content for developers and later business leaders that showed that we understood what they were looking for. And then we paired that with easy access to our code 
and that built kind of the base. And then the flywheel came from there. What are some memorable examples for you of either content for developers or content for the, I would assume it's IT business leaders, right? We have a, a platform that allows application builders to integrate the login experience very easily without having to learn about authentication protocols or security or things like that. It simplifies that process for them. And so really the users, the folks that that would get the value fairly early were the developers. Switching gears on the other side, so on the business content or the, you know, for chief product officers, what sort of content is it was is luring them to you? Some of our customers are B2B SaaS companies. And if they don't have these capabilities, they're going to lose deals. You know, and so now we have the ability to go up to product managers and say, like, look, I'm sure you're hearing about it from your VPs of sales that are losing deals because you don't have these capabilities. Or to chief digital officers and say you're losing revenue because people are trading off your website because your login experience is terrible. And so, you know, now that we're big enough to not be viewed as just a hipster dev tools company, you know, we layer in that business messaging and that's top down. We still have developer affinity as bottoms up, and that's given us kind of more than just one path to pipeline generation, which becomes important as you get larger and larger. We promised the listeners that we would talk a little bit more about leadership, so we'll switch gears over there. You mentioned as we were prepping to get on the call today that you had just actually run a session for your team on management leadership. Tell me a little bit about that session and how you pulled it off also, in I would assume, in a completely virtual environment. Yeah, we've been fairly virtual for a while. So we've been kind of fortunate given what's going on globally with the pandemic. But in terms of the the training, you know, we've gone from 30, 40 employees to over 704 and a half years. And so the beauty in that is a lot of individual contributors that came in and did everything that we asked of them and more, worked hard, were intellectually curious, became first-time managers, right? And so that's the beauty of, of fast growth. One of them is that you can you know, see folks really accelerate their career. The other side of that corn is we've got a whole lot of managers that have never managed people before. And so you know, the thing that we, we focused on in yesterday's conversation was some tendencies that first-time managers have. My experience has been there's a couple things that first-time managers do. First, I think they assume they've been given the mandate because they did the work. You know, they came in as a salesperson and were 140% of plan for three years. So they came in as a demand gen person in marketing, hit their numbers for eight quarters in a row or, or whatever that might be. And so their reaction is awesome. I need to go make minions. My job is to create mini me's to do exactly what I did. That's what scale is. And there's then a tendency to be a pace setter. And, and I'm starting to date myself here, but I think one of the first books of, on emotional intelligence um, I think the guy's last name was Dolman. Uh, Daniel Dolman, yeah. You know, his view is there's six different leadership styles, and there is no one leadership style that is the best. The best leaders have the ability to flex between different ones. But the one that I see new managers settle into first most often is one that he called pace setting. And uh, in pace setting, you know, very loosely can be summarized as this hey, moron, it's not that hard. Watch me do it. While you may be affecting knowledge transfer in doing that, it is obviously incredibly demoralizing to your team. First, you're stifling intellectual curiosity on your team because you know they just become used to waiting for you to tell them what to do. Second, I mean, let's face it, if you're promoted, you're probably pretty damn good at doing it. And there's a chance that a bunch of the folks in your team are never going to be that good. And that's okay, right? Your job is to get you know, rather than replicating yourself at 10 units of production, if you can get eight people doing eight units, you know, that's 64 units. That's, there you go. So, but I think a lot of folks will respond to that and go, you know what, I'm never going to be as good as that person. Like I'm never going to get there. 
And so not only are they going to become demoralized, but they're also not going to come back for help. And so now you've got a team that is floundering on their own, trying to figure it out. So that was one area we focused on, was trying to avoid as a new manager, the tendency to pace set out of the gate. And the second thing we talked about was how, quite frankly, the things that made you a brilliant individual contributor, not only may they not help you as a manager, they might be your undoing. You can have your willingness to run through walls, break some glass, make a ruckus, do whatever it takes, work all hours. Those are things that you kind of need to dial back when you're trying to nurture and manage a bunch of different personalities. So anyways, those are some of the things that we spent time talking about. Yeah, I I had a big epiphany of my own recently. As you move to the executive level, and I had to reflect deeply on this, that there's like five or six things you you might not delegate, but everything else you should delegate. One is strategic planning. Two is developing and coaching others, your, your direct reports. Three is making decisions. I mean, that's why you're in the job that you're in. Although, again, some of these things can be delegated, you know, depending on need and come back to decisions because I, I saw you had a little reaction to that one, especially. So we'll talk about that one. Uh, communicating. And you had talked about like the value of those skip level meetings and making sure that the messages were resonating and authentic and traveling properly. Then gaining external perspective. So talking to peers out there. The more senior you get, right, you have fewer and fewer peers in the organization that you can turn to it for advice and maybe are comfortable turning to advice. So that, that external perspective is incredibly valuable. And I was chatting about this with our CEO, Kyle Porter, and he added a sixth one that I didn't have originally on the list, which was self-improvement in whatever form that takes. Uh, we'll get back to decision-making in a second, but is there anything I missed that you feel is like critical for executive leaders to take responsibility for? No, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, ultimately, we're responsible for culture, right? And so you mentioned communication, but I think ensuring that what we as leaders believe the values and priorities of the company are, are understood by everybody. And I think often we think that quantity of communication equates to quality of communication. And that's another reason that the skip level is so helpful for me is just to see that, you know, we may run an endless stream of all hands meetings and Slack updates and blogs and all kinds of things. And and sometimes still the message for whatever reason isn't landing either because we got it wrong or people just maybe they have communication fatigue, you know, so making it land, I would say be one, but I think that's more just augmenting your feedback there. I think on, on decisions, I wasn't disagreeing that, that leaders are ultimately accountable, but I think there's situations where we as leaders feel like it's time to be prescriptive. We've given folks time to take an opportunity to come up with their own ideas But I think even in being prescriptive by virtue of the language we use, we can be a little more democratic or or even, you know, uh, have a mentor hat on. And it can literally be, you know, have you considered what that might look like if we instead did X? Or how would you think about an alternative approach of, you know, really, at the end of the day, you've decided that's the approach that I think you want, you know, but you're encouraging conversation on it as opposed to saying, I've made a call. They're part of the decision process. And it's really a nuance. It's so important. I think when you kind of ask that Socratic question of them, you are doing two things. One is that you're listening incredibly actively and incredibly deeply, that you truly have an open mind. If you're just asking asking a statement, as it were, they will detect that and they'll know that that's, that's what the deal is. That's right. If it's um, not authentic, it's even worse than just being prescriptive up, up front. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I was just reading a book about Amazon. I think it's called like the Amazon way or something like that. And uh, they were talking about how Amazon thinks about, or Bezos, I guess, in particular, thinks about type one and type two decisions. So type one decisions being 
the bet the company decisions, you know, spend billions of dollars on Amazon Web Services and see what happens. Those are the kinds of decisions that need to float up to him and to his leadership team. And then type two decisions are, are basically revocable decisions. It's super inefficient for you to have to review stuff. And also it disempowers, you know, your individual contributors and your first line managers who should be making those types of decisions. I think that's right. And that's an area, frankly, where I continue to learn, right? And I think the conclusion I've come to over the last couple quarters is if I'm not delegating some things that make me uncomfortable to delegate, then I'm probably not doing my job because, you know, at the scale that we're at now and where we expect to go over the next two years, you know, I've got leaders, both regional and domain, that I think are absolutely capable of stepping up to that next level for us over the next few years as we go from you know low nine figures to high nine figures in revenue. But they're not going to do it if I don't ask them to do it. If I make the decisions for them, it's not going to happen. And so I increasingly am trying to challenge myself to delegate things to others and leave it completely alone. And that's not my nature, even after 20 plus years of doing this. So it, it, it's tough. What's the last thing you delegated that made you uncomfortable to delegate? Our overall capacity model for one area of our business, kind of what our productivity should look like in one area, you know, what the right amount of output was and is. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. It's hard because, uh, you know, in, in the hyper growth environment, I can I can empathize. It's a, it's a hard thing to, to let go of. Yeah, absolutely. But then if I don't do that, how am I finding the next big force, force multiplier for the business, right? Which is ultimately my job, yeah. or part of my job. Uh, one of the things you mentioned that you you had some thoughts on was also about managing up. I mean, a lot of our listeners are trying to manage their careers, right? I mean, people are aspiring to become heads of sales and then ultimately CROs with that responsibility, spanning sales, service, and marketing potentially. Uh, managing up is a big part of that. So what are some of your kind of key thoughts on on how you manage those upward relationships? I guess peer relationships too. We didn't talk enough about that, but those are critical as well. There are two things. I think the first one is to be aggressive about delivering bad news. And that sounds ridiculous, right? But I think, you know, we just like junior salespeople might be a little optimistic about their forecast up until the bitter end, hoping for that one deal that lands, you know, especially as a young manager, I think it's easy to do the same thing, right? And you're ultimately, you know, you were given your job so your manager can scale. Your manager can only scale if they trust that you have a handle on your business. So if you wait to the last minute, to share bad news. It intimates that you didn't see it coming and you don't know what's going on in your business. Whereas if you identify something early, you have proposed solutions for how you intend to deal with it and how you intend to observe it, there's really nothing for your boss to grouse about. You found it before they did. You showed that you're comfortable in your own skin by bringing it to them. You gave them an opportunity to poke at it, but you've already identified a solution. Or if not, you've brought them questions. And so what that really does is increase the level of confidence they have in you and your business. And so I think that's one area of advice I have. Another is around communication. I think if you're a relatively young manager, I mean, an experienced managing people, the things that you tend to spend a lot of time on, the things that tend to occupy your mind a lot are people-related things. Do I have to fire this person? This other person isn't respecting my authority. I'm worried so-and-so won't make it. Yet your boss, who is likely a manager of managers, that's mundane to them. There's a certain amount of turnover that's going to happen. There's a certain amount of folks that are going to excel, a certain amount they're going to wash out, and that's normal. But I think a lot of young managers managing up, the preponderance of their conversations, they tend to lead with the HR stuff, which, you know, frankly, you should be able to talk with your boss about those things. They're there to help you develop. But the more that you over-index there, 
you know, it kind of shows that you're still relatively young in your management experience. And so my recommendation is to always lead with, whether it's your structured one-on-ones or quarterly reviews, to lead with business-related things that feed into KPIs that your manager is judged on. Save the people stuff for after or a different conversation. So those are a couple of high-level thoughts, yeah. Be a solution bringer most of the time. If you don't have the solution, at least at definitely bring forward the situation so that you guys can figure out what's going on and how to move forward. On the second piece about one-on-ones, I, I just finished reading uh, the book about Bill Campbell, who was, he's the trillion dollar coach is the name of the book. And he was at Xerox for a while, then Apple working with Steve Jobs. But in there, it talks about his one-on-one approach and how he teaches people to do it. And I thought this fascinating, which was, each person writes five things down in priority order and then like mutually shares them with each other at the same time. And then, you know, you can resolve, sort of integrate those those five item lists. And it does always start with, he, he actually always started with rapport first, which most people do anyway, and then go into KPIs and then progress from there. I'd say the rapport thing is interesting because that's part that, again, as I was a kind of the former top performing salesperson and those folks aren't always great managers, the rapport part, how was your weekend? How are you doing? You know, how was your kid's baseball game? That, that doesn't come naturally to me, candidly. I've joked about this, right? Please don't ask about my weekend because then I have to tell you and I have to ask about yours. And that's five minutes we won't have to talk about pipeline and, and the important stuff. And I think you come to realize over time, the number one reason that people leave businesses is because of a lack of confidence in their relationship with their manager. And the number one thing people look for there is a sense that their managers care about them and their families. Pretty damn important. A related side note to uh, one of the things Bill Campbell instituted in Google's kind of weekly, you know, Monday morning meeting was precisely that question, what did you do over the weekend? And I think they liked it because the Google founders are hyper adventure seeking people, especially in the early days of Google. So, you know, their adventures in kite surfing and whatever else that they were doing at the time. Got it. Got it. Yeah, my directs aren't getting that. It's usually a, it's about looking for lost keys, pulling weeds, and probably a mistake with scotch. Um, so yeah, <laughs> less satisfying for my directs, probably. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom about you know operating sales, service, marketing, and the 360-degree leadership tips. So thanks so much for your time today, Dave. If people do want to learn more about Auth0, I assume you guys are growing and hiring. Uh, what's the best way for them to do that? We are. We are. Website, jobs board, we're actually pretty serious about keeping that updated. So that's definitely the place to check. And yeah, all departments, all areas, we expect to grow quite a bit over the coming quarters. So absolutely check it out. Congrats on your personal success, but more importantly, your team's success. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. Peter Lepinto is our editor. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.